Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Job, chapter 29. Job is one of those poetical books in the Bible that is very remarkable as far as its message is concerned. And I'm sure that most people listening in today will know something of the experiences that Job had in his life. We will be referring to some of them as the message continues. But this particular chapter 29 of Job, it's very unique in the sense that it brings us to a period in Job's life uh, prior to all the trials and testings that are documented concerning him. So as we read from verse 1, uh, we will read through to the last verse of the chapter. That is Job chapter 29 and verse 1. Moreover, Job continued his parable and said, O oh, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God preserved me, when his candle shined upon my head, and when by his light I walked through darkness. As I was in the days of my youth, when the secret of God was upon my tabernacle, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were about me, when I washed my steps with butter, and the rock poured me out rivers of oil, when I went out to the gate through the city, when I prepared my seat in the street. The young men saw me and hid themselves, and the aged arose and stood up. The princes refrained talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The nobles held their peace and their tongue cleaved to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard me, then it blessed me, and when the eyes saw me, it gave witness to me. Because I delivered the poor that cried and the fatherless and him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My judgment was as a robe and a diadem. I was eyes to the blind, and feet was I to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and the cause which I knew not I searched out. And I break the jaws of the wicked, and pluck the spoil out of his teeth. Then I said, I shall die in my nest, I shall multiply my days as the sand. My root was spread out by the waters, and the dew lay all night upon my branch. My glory was fresh in me, and my bow was renewed in my hand. Unto me men give ear, and waited, and kept silence at my counsel. After my words they spake not again, and my speech dropped upon them. And they waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouth wide as for the latter rain. If I laughed in them, they believed it not, and the light of my countenance they cast not down. I chose out their way, and sat chief, and dwelt as a king in the army, and one that comforteth the mourners. 
We enter reading at verse 25 of this particular chapter, knowing that God will add to the public reading of his word his own divine seal of approval and blessing. Humanly speaking, it is impossible for any person to enter into the emotional feelings of another individual, especially when they are bearing some of life's most mysterious burdens. For the Apostle Paul, it was his deep passion for the unconverted that constrained him to articulate the innermost feelings of his heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, he said, for my brethren, for my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Other men and women in the scriptures were so overwhelmed through the circumstances that they were facing that they were in need of being rendered helpless. Nehemiah, for example, on hearing the report of Jerusalem's devastation, testified, and it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Moses, when confronted with the rebellion in the camp of Israel, fell upon his face, as did our blessed Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, such incidents tell us that the body in which our eternal soul resides is susceptible to crushing blows that can originate from any number of unsolicited sources. When the assault on our emotional sensitivities is singular, it carries sufficient weight to overload the thoughts of our minds. But when a multiplicity of concerns converge together, they have the potential to cause us an irreparable amount of damage. This particular form of sequencing is powerfully highlighted through the life of the patriarch Job, who was thrust into circumstances that left him the subject for unjustifiable ridicule. Known throughout the region as a godly man, his entire life crumbled under a series of events that left him languishing in an exceedingly dark place. Within a short period of time, every emotional fiber of his being was nullified by the eradication of his business, the sudden deaths of his seven sons and three daughters, and the debilitating impact of an illness that caused his wife to say, "Is God and die. Although, as we will discover, he had been a source of blessing to many people, the only three men that came to see him were those who were united to him through their interest in poetry. It is clear from their conversations that they were unregenerate men who in past days had observed the proactive spirit of their friend against every conceivable form of iniquity. Evidently, they did not agree with him on a stand against evil. 
but his gift of poetry gave them a common platform to develop their friendship. For seven days they sat in an act of silence in order to demonstrate that they were seeking to empathize with this forlorn specimen of humanity. But at the end of seven days, the full force of a conversational assault was unleashed against a God's servant. Basing their flawed theology on the principle that man will only suffer such devastating blows if there is some sinful reason behind it, they judged that their friend was nothing more than a hypocrite when it came to his religious profession and he needed to repent of his iniquitous ways. It is hard not to sense the degree of satisfaction that interwove itself into their assessment of the situation. They very quickly arose to the summit of their self-created moral ground, looking down at a dear man whose life and ministry had been a source of blessing to many people, a ministry that Job seeks to rehearse in this 29th chapter of the book. Timing his reflective thought to the days when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were about me, he details the fact that he was considered as a man worthy of the utmost respect. True it is, he had properties and holdings that distinguished him as one of the most wealthiest men, but his practical assistance to others was exceptionally commendable. He sought out those who were left defenseless against the intimidatory demands of the bailiffs. And when men were so far down in spirit that they were ready to give up, he ministered encouragement to them. Using the most superb version of poetry, Job describes how he was eyes to the blind and feet was I to the lame. But what really challenged my own heart when meditating on this chapter was the reference at the end of verse 13. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. At first this statement struck me as being contrary to the reality of the situation. I have always considered widowhood as a very personal identity for those who must bear the burden of the bereaved. It seems to me that there is no general classification that can be used to cover every dear one who wears the black crepe of sorrow upon their heart. Everyone is given the freedom to respond to their emotional pain in a manner that is in keeping with their God-gifted makeup and with their own personality. But there is one thing that cannot be denied, and that is the special place that God has in his heart for all who sorrow, but particularly for the widow. So when I read the words, 
and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy, I, I felt the need to draw your attention to them in the understanding that their application can be all-embracing. That is, they can be applied to every dear man, uh, to every dear woman, who is in need of spiritual support and in need of prayerful sympathy. The first thing that I received from this text was the definition of pure religion. The definition of pure religion. Most will accept that it is unnecessary to, to define the meaning of widowhood, particularly within the context of human loss. But it is possible that many dear men and women suffer the effects of what we might call a spiritual widowhood. And that is, a person who is living their life without the conscious presence of the one who lovingly embraces every purchased sinner as his bride. Was this not the problem for multitudes of Israelites down through their most checkered history? Over and over again, questions were asked concerning their forefathers' relationship with the living God. In addressing an heavenly messenger, Gideon, for example, said, O oh my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And in the period immediately after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have two disciples making their way home to the village of Emmaus, evidently mesmerized by the reports that were coming from Jerusalem and being sensitive to the loss of one who they described as a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, they experienced, they experienced emotions akin to widowhood that included the immeasurable depths of human sadness. Such somberness will always invade the life that is overpowered by the silence of loss. Had not these disciples been daily enriched through words spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom it was said, never man speak as this man. Now they concluded that such conversations were finished, with the resulting emotion dragging them into the narrow confines of the sorrowful. It was Alfred Lord Tennyson who in some measure captured her thoughts in his poem entitled Break, 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 is seeking to convey the loneliness of the seafarer as he thought of loved ones on a far distant shore. He stated, But oh, for the touch of a vanished hand and the sound of a voice that, that is still. It is at this point in the disciples' experience that we receive a challenging definition of pure religion. At first, it might seem curious to some why the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ appeared to two of his disciples making their journey 
away from Jerusalem before revealing himself to the others who remained in the city. But according to James 1 verse 27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. As the omniscient one, that is one who is all-knowing, he knew that the hearts of his followers would be broken in varying degrees of severity. Through eyes that reflected the tenderness of a dove, the Messiah observed how hearts absorbed with sorrow can sadly move away from him. At which point, may I say, that these two disciples were feeling the injury of the loss of their master more uh, than the others. Not that the rest had become unsensitized to trouble and grief of spirit. They most certainly had their feelings. But in proportionate terms, the two were at the extreme end of sadness and needed the special attention of the man of sorrows. And to that end, he visited them in their affliction, just as his servant Job did with the sorrowful in his day. Now, what is remarkable about Job causing the widow's heart to sing for joy is that he had no written instruction to act as he did. The first five books of the Bible were not available to him as he predeceased Moses. But being a man possessed with a righteous fear of God, he was divinely guided to maintain the purity of religion. Here in this 29th chapter, Job acknowledged that he had been richly blessed through having the sacred of God upon his entire life, verse 4. And although he couldn't relate to any particular verse of Scripture, he was truly gifted the understanding that the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant, words from Psalm 25, verse 14. This enabled him to fulfill his heavenly Father's definition of pure religion a definition that is in direct harmony with the unalterable principle, every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Purity and protection of his sorrowing people are synonymous with the Son of God's unchanging love for all that the Father hath given him. He rejoices with them that rejoice. He weeps with them that weeps. Attributes that cause the widow's heart to sing for joy. But our text also enables us to identify the deprivation of rapture. As the disciples that we've referred to move further away from the scene of the cross, 
uh, their conversation showed signs of spiritual deprivation. They had exchanged the experience of singing for sign, the emotion of joy for the emotion of sadness. Now, it is accepted that the majority of people have already been acquainted with these unsolicited changes in life, none more so than the widow in their affliction. But the loss of fellowship with the one who is the lover of our soul introduces us to a different dimension of sighing and of sadness. David in Psalm 51 permits us to accompany him into the innermost depths of his heart as he pleaded that God would restore to me uh, the joy of thy salvation, verse 12. His submission to the sensual demands of the flesh had exposed the waywardness of his thinking, which in turn drew him away uh, from the presence of his God. Being out of fellowship with the one who took him from the sheep coat, uh, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel, in 2 Samuel 7, verse 8, he forfeited the rich blessing of a rapturous life that was expressed through the gift of joy. And that was the challenge that Job encountered with the sorrowing of his day, in that joy is not some self-created commodity that can be manufactured at will. It is fundamentally a gift that is inseparably, inseparably linked to its giver. This is highlighted in the verse 11 of Psalm 16. In thy presence is fullness of joy. It therefore follows that stepping away from the Lord's presence will adversely impact upon the sense of joy a person experiences. Little wonder David looked for the dawning of a day that would replace the night of his spiritual widowhood for the joy that would come in the morning. But as we have noted, singing is also affected when the heart plums the depths of widowhood. It is a tabulation of our loss when we struggle to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that loss of melody is attributed to the spiritual distancing of our hearts from communion with the Godhead. This is powerfully highlighted when the children of Israel had been exiled in the land of Babylon. Far from the city of Zion, some of them sat down by the rivers of Babylon. When their captives urged them to sing songs that reflected the musical culture of their former land. Their response was in keeping with what we're describing as that of spiritual widowhood. Psalm 37, verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept 
when we remembered Zion. We hanged our hearts upon the willows in the midst thereof. At which point the captives made a most telling statement. Verse 4 of the psalm, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Their circumstances were more conducive with sighing than with singing. And that remains the situation with those of us who have entered the cold shadows of a fractured relationship with God. Was this not the problem that had entwined itself around the heart of Peter in the palace of the high priest? Significantly, three of the gospel writers record the words, but Peter followed afar off, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Sadly, that distance was not simply geographically, it was clearly spiritually. As one whose lips had corresponded to the singing of a hymn literally hours before are now expressing words that could not have been more contradictory. It is hard to define the sudden change of tone as Peter moved from one location to another. Therefore, it is no surprise that this dear follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, on recognizing that he had deprived his spirit of the rapturous praise that had echoed through the upper room, went out and wept bitterly. Mercifully, God's interest in this spiritual widower was unaffected by the public denial of his most vociferous disciple. And like his servant Job, caused his sorrow-stricken heart to sing again for joy. It was a wonderful moment in Peter's life whenever the Lord came to him. Which brings us to our concluding thought. And that is the doctrine of promised recovery. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Although the word caused is used in other portions of scripture, including the book of Job, there is no Hebrew word that defines its use in our text. But its inclusion is not only worthy of the text, it is entirely justified. The translators included the word to reference the bond or the adhesion that existed between Job and those he was concerned with in their sorrowing state. And that formed itself into a very blessed union of fellowship. To come alongside a person in their hour of need generally, generally, forges a union that is best described in the words of Hebrews 13, verse 3. Remember them 
that are in bonds is bound with them. And them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. This reflects the practical interest the Lord Jesus Christ has for his afflicted children. This is revealed in Isaiah 63 and verse 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. The promise of bearing up his redeemed and carrying us throughout the days of our life is not only reassuring, but it does confirm the Father's unconditional care for all who are chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. This he defined in his eternal mandate recorded by the Holy Spirit in both Old and New Testament scriptures. Isaiah 61 verse 1 and Luke 4 verse 18 Repeat the contextual message, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Widowhood, in its broadest definition, is without doubt the forerunner to multiple injuries, rendering the casualty in need of recovery. A recovery that is prescribed in Psalm 107, verse 20. He sent his word and he healed them. Now this poses an interesting question concerning Job. What word did he bring to the widows that caused their hearts to sing for joy? Remember, he didn't have the scriptures as we have them. So what he communicated to them, it must have been directly revealed to him from God himself. Which makes one of the greatest verses in God's word so remarkable. Job 19 and verse 25. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And what is more inspirational is the fact that the widows accepted this doctrine of recovery. By refocusing their hearts upon a day beyond the veil of death, they captured the glorious theme of the resurrection. Because I live, ye shall live also. John 14, verse 19. A truth that enables us uh, to enter the corridor of death with this assurance that the Savior has removed its sting, enabling us to say on the authority of the precious shed blood, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? This we do in the company of the friend above all friends, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will recover us and who thankfully will make us live again. Isaiah 38, verse 16, O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit. So shalt thou recover me and make me live. I wonder today, is there anyone listening that is in need of spiritual recovery? As you've followed through the the Lord's message, you've been able to identify perhaps with the loss of joy in your heart, or maybe the loss of singing, factors that reflect that you are gradually distancing yourself more and more from the presence of your Heavenly Father. Could I encourage you prayerfully to enter into fellowship with him again so that he might cause your heart to sing for joy? God does not despise the sorrowing in heart. He does not leave you aside because you have lost your song. Rather, he comes near. He wants to be part of you. He wants to join with you. He wants to be, as it were, linked to you so that you might know the warmth of his presence. And in knowing his presence, he might cause your heart to sing for joy. And to those who are not saved, may I humbly appeal to you to consider your latter end. There is no greater joy, there is no greater happiness than that experienced by the one who knows that their sins have been cleansed in the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us, no matter who we are, we're worthy to be cast into the darkest chambers of hell. But then we read these wonderful words, that the Lord Jesus Christ became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What a glorious thought that is. That the Lord Jesus Christ, he took my sin, identified with my iniquity, and he gave to me the robe of his righteousness, so that I might stand before my eternal Father, justified by faith alone in Christ alone. I commend the Lord Jesus Christ to you this morning as a friend who loveth at all times, as a friend who causes the widow's heart to sing for joy. What a blessing it would be today as this service concludes if you would be able to sing even as others have been able to sing before. The Lord hath done great things for me, where oft I am glad. 
Thank you for listening. I trust that God will truly write his word upon your life. And if you're sorrowing, and I know many are sorrowing today, may you be reassured that the man of sorrows is touched with the feeling of your infirmity. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy.